This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein. Last year, the North Dakota Department of Corrections created a new position, a Director of Diversity and Cultural Competency. Erica Thunder was named to the post in September. In this excerpt from the Prairie Pulse television show, she visits with host John Harris about her new position as she tackles many issues affecting Native Americans and other minorities when it comes to the state's criminal justice system. Erica, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. As we get started, we always do. Tell the folks a little bit about yourself and maybe your background. Sure. Well, my background is that I'm a North Dakota girl born and bred. Um, I'm originally from Botno in the Turtle Mountains area. Um, I grew up there, did K-12 through at Botno. Um, uh, both of my parents were educated as educators, but my dad went into farming and was a farmer um, for as long as he lived in my life. Um, he passed away when I was 16, and my mom was a music teacher all around the Turtle Mountains. And, um, and so we had a lot of music in our life, and my dad was a uh, big sportsman. So we had all sorts of things that we got to enjoy growing up. Um, I have an older brother, and uh, uh, he went to UND, and so I followed him to UND. And so I did all four years there for my undergrad, um, graduated with a degree in political science, and then graduated at 21 and went directly into law school after that and graduated with my Juris Doctorate and my uh, Indian Law Certificate, which sometimes there's misnomers with the certificate part. It really was kind of like a double major and being able to specialize specifically in Indian Law, which I mean, really is a complex area of law that interfaces with all other areas of law, which is jurisdictional complexity is added to it. Um, and a little bit more about my background. Um, I met my husband while I was at UND. He's a citizen of the Ho-Chunk Nation of Wisconsin. And um, that comes into play in my life as well because um, I, uh, when I graduated from law school, I went to work for my tribe, MHA Nation. I'm a proud enrolled citizen there. I'm a Rikaran Hidatsa. Um, my family is originally from Elbow Woods, which um, isn't really a town anymore. It's under Lakes Kakawea. Um, but I was really proud to be able to go back and serve my nation as a staff attorney. And then I went on to serve my husband's nation, the Ho-Chunk Nation, as a staff attorney as well. And since 2016, I've been in the state of North Dakota working for state government in a number of different roles. Well, and we're here today, today to talk about the newest one, I guess, you've got. Uh, what is the new position uh, that you're in, and why was it created? Yeah, so I serve as, um, I guess, the first director of uh, diversity and cultural competency for uh, North Dakota Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and I'm still relatively new, going on my fourth month. Um, but I look back kind of at my whole professional career and even before that, my education and the things that I was very interested in, um, it's very much on uh, criminal justice reform and prison reform and being able to kind of see these gaps that we had specifically with tribal communities, um, but for folks overall that were underrepresented. And um, how this position came about really was, I think, a uh, a long, a long time coming, a lot of conversations that happened over a number of years where maybe we didn't even realize that this would turn into a position. Um, and I approached uh, Director Dave Krabinoff, the director for Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and kind of had a, a little bit of what the position could look like, not even thinking necessarily, oh, this is a position that I can hold, but Rather, this is something that I think we can do. And he was like, yeah, we can. And so after conversations, of course, with Governor and his team and Dave and going through the interview process, because I had to go through the interview process just like anyone else, um, got to the other side and was offered the position. And we all agreed that it was a really beautiful way to be able to combine the work that I had done as a Commissioner of Labor and Human Rights, the work that I had done on behalf of Indian Country and serving with you know, North Dakota Indian Affairs Commission and serving multiple tribes, um, and combining that all into something that really could 
push forward one of Governor's five initiatives, tribal partnerships, in the best way possible, and, and interweaving it as well with some of the other initiatives that he's has been focusing on as well, behavioral, things like that. Mm-hmm. So you did say, you, it sounds like you and the governor did talk about this job on how you see it and how he sees it. Did y'all, were yeah. y'all able to come together on that? Yeah, <laughs> um, I was really, I've been very blessed to have a really good relationship with Governor Burgum. And um, it really was, you know, after everything, after I interviewed and accepted the position and everything else that, like, we finally were able to just kind of exchange, you know, some thoughts and ideas. And um, I think some of those even came out of, interestingly enough, maybe even my resignation letter, which usually is kind of more of a, a sad type of thing, but it was a bittersweet thing. It was reflecting on all these wonderful things that had happened throughout the years and then, you know, really being able to say, I'm so uh, thankful that this is an opportunity that I'll be able to have now for the future and it's not really even about me in the end. This is such a bigger picture than me. And um, he he was, he, you know, governor's mind is just like always going a thousand miles a minute and he's like 20 steps ahead. <laughs> and so, yeah, he just had a lot to, to input and he was very encouraging and um, he really encouraged director Dave Kravinoft as well. And so it felt good to have all of that. And it felt good because Dave and I, um, director Kravinoff and I had been good friends when we were on the cabinet together. So it was really nice, like to be able to work for someone that I considered a friend and a mentor and someone I really look to. Well, so, so what are, or what will be as, as you're, four months, maybe you hadn't got all this going, your day-to-day activities and what plans and programs are you going to implement? Yeah, so I think that, you know, the list is is probably never complete, to just put it really simply. But really where I'm starting from, because we've been able to complete a full, you know, like strategic planning of this and really try to put in paper what we're trying to do now. Um, But the biggest part of what I'm doing at this point on a day-to-day basis is really trying to work with especially, you know, tribal nations and to understand, you know, these huge gaps that we have between jurisdictions, whether it be in parole and probation, um, whether it be in uh, safe transports. um, And we're working now on being able to sign off on MOUs, Memorandums of Understanding, Uh, between the tribal nations and uh, the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation on being able to do essentially cross-jurisdictional services, um, you know, uh, for those who who might be in in jail or in their uh, correctional facilities on the tribal nations. So... We're starting with a lot of that work, but I've gone in specifically within all of the facilities of DOCR and really tried to be able to understand the populations and what, you know, the the folks who are working for DOCR, the boots on the ground, what they're seeing, you know, the, the things that um, they've asked for, like, you know, education and being under being able to understand uh, cultural identities a lot better and things like that. And also just being able to provide um, cultural services. I went in with the women's facility at the Heart River Correctional Center in Mandan and uh, did some some, uh, smudging ceremonies with the uh, females there. And um, that was one of the most beautiful things that I've been able to be a part of. So it's... It's been really, we're off to the races, and it's been extremely fulfilling. Yeah. You've talked around it, I think, but can you, what is cultural competency? Yeah, really, really simply, um, cultural competency is just the ability to engage and communicate, interact, listen, probably more than anything, consult, and really be able to ask questions of those that come from diverse backgrounds and be able to understand what are the needs, what are the barriers. You know, we we often can reflect on, you know, um, things like how, you know, we should, you know, maybe throw the book at certain people and things like that. But there's a story behind a lot of these folks where, 
you know, whether they started out in boarding schools or lived a life of a lot of abuse growing up. I mean, there's a lot of folks that I've met that were institutionalized at a very young age that I don't think ever really got to speak about that and what that was like. And I think that um, a lot of the muscles that we have as human beings about how we're able to live healthy, safe lives, that can atrophy when you're in an institution after a while. And so um, cultural competency really is just the ability to understand those things. Because I can't um, put myself in every other culture's shoes, but I can look through their lens and I can, you know, offer that for them as well. You know, so I'm really kind of a liaison in that role, too. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the, the systemic issues that lead to Native Americans and minorities to occupy sort of a higher percentage of incarceration than non-minorities? Yeah, I think that there's there's so many different things that we could talk about here, but I think just some of the most basic are just that, our basic needs, you know, not being able to be met. I'm very proud that North Dakota has such a low unemployment rate. I mean, we're absolutely doing tremendous there. But when we look at tribal nations and the lands that they occupy, um, specifically the tribal nations that share geography with North Dakota, their reservation lands, poverty is through the roof and unemployment is, you know, 50 percent or higher at times so there just aren't enough opportunities really even for those of indigenous backgrounds to be able to succeed and when we don't have those things we'll resort to anything to make sure that we can survive Uh, of course solving these issues would be a big task Uh, uh, how do you plan to address this at all I think that there's a lot, and I think um, I really believe that that cultural competency piece is um, so incredibly important. And I hope I've always said the same thing to um, the folks at DOCR and anyone outside of DOCR as well. Use me, however, is needed. You know, um, I've seen so many breakdowns in communication between the various jurisdictions, and I. I often say this, you know, there was a relationship that was established between the U.S. federal government and tribal nations, this trust responsibility um, that's been written, you know, in all sorts of our laws and everything else. But we need to be able to give ourselves a lot of grace as a state. There was never a relationship or how the relationship should exist between state and sovereign tribal nations. So I think that there's you know, a lot of work that just includes um, true consultation, meeting tribal nations where they're at and, and going directly where they are and being able to understand, you know, what are some of their biggest challenges? Because MHA Nation will be different than Turtle Mountain and it'll be different than Spirit Lake, etc. And really being able to, I would say, create multidisciplinary type of teams and a holistic wraparound approach um, with folks who have been incarcerated, um, you know, and starting at a very young age as well with prevention, too, and mm-hmm. education and things like that. I think my greatest hope is having a combination of all of that and, uh, you know, um, again, really utilizing um, our understanding of others to hopefully be able to meet the needs and uh, do it in a way that is um, cost-effective for everyone, especially the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, the, the goals of rehabilitation and making sure some of these inmates don't reoffend or end up back in the prison system, yeah. uh, is that part of your... Yeah, very much so. Um, there's so many different statistics out there, but um, a big goal of, of DOCR is... You know, and a big part of our mission is being able to ensure that the 95% of folks who have been incarcerated, who re-enter the world, will be able to be great neighbors and will be able to be safe neighbors and people who can contribute and have the resources that they need, that they can, you know, assist um, their families even. I mean, just like the bare minimum of things. 
So yeah, there's there's so much really to that. Um, but I really hope that with some of the education that we're doing internally within you know the walls of uh, the facilities, that like I said before, these these muscles that we have on the outside of the walls don't atrophy while being within. And hopefully uh, there are folks that will take full advantage of the education that they can receive within DOCR and then within our facilities and especially places like Rough Rider Industries that is just doing amazing work um, and being able to really make placements, you know, of folks after they're, they're finished with their, you know, sentences. Well, it sounds like you have a passion for your job, but how has the job gone so far? Or are you just getting your feet wet? I would say all of the above again. I, you know, I'm always going to be passionate about whatever it is that I'm in. I can't, I, I can't work without passion, no matter if I'm serving the Department of Labor and Human Rights or the Indian Affairs Commission or whatever it may be. And, um, this is certainly very much um, close to my heart, but um, I'm still getting my feet wet as well. There's a lot for me um, to learn, and we've got so many great partners at DOCR from around the United States and around the world as well. You know, we've really tapped into a lot of the Scandinavian templates of how they're utilizing different resources for their own uh, prison reform and criminal justice reform efforts, and it's it's super exciting for me and so i'm just excited to learn more yeah well you know you were a labor commissioner and and worked with the north dakota indian affairs commission you know how does how do those jobs relate to this job i think it it was a beautiful marriage of both of those things i still serve as an at-large appointed commissioner to the north dakota indian affairs commission itself which governor serves as the chairman of and the five tribal nations chairs serve as commissioners and there's three at-large appointed members and one of those three we meet quarterly um so it helps me still have a very direct pulse on where tribal nations are going what they're needing and also just like the amazing things that you know they continue to accomplish and do and um it allows for a really good chance to have very honest and open conversations on the things that we all face in our roles as leaders. And I can't say enough about labor and human rights. I feel like I had kind of maybe third, I guess, education there (laughs) outside of my undergrad and my doctorate um, in learning so much about our protected classes and protected activities in North Dakota and especially probably on, you know, of course, wage and hour issues, but certainly on the human rights side of things. And, uh, yeah, I've been able to combine all of it for this because I should say, too, I'm really focusing today's conversation on tribal citizens and tribal nations, but I'm serving people of, you know, all backgrounds, you know, folks who are disabled, folks of, you know, all races and and everything else. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. Erica, if people want more information, where can they go? Reach out to North Dakota Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Kaylee Richards is our public information officer. She can handle whatever it is. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That's John Harris visiting with Erica Thunder, the Department of Corrections Director of Diversity and Cultural Competency. Prairie Pulse airs Thursday at 8 p.m. on Prairie Public's television service. In tonight's episode, John visits with Sarah Matthews, Executive Director of the Red River Children's Advocacy Center. After this break, we'll hear about rural child care in a report from Harvest Public Media. Support for Prairie Public is provided by the Bush Foundation, investing in great ideas and the people who power them in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and the 23 Native nations that share that same geography. Learn more at bushfoundation.org. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. 
Many families don't have access to formal child care. It's affecting an estimated 30% of the nation's children as the need for quality care far outweighs the supply. And it's worse in rural areas. As Harvest Public Media's ex-curate Nunez reports, rural parents often cobble together child care using friends and family, drive miles away to daycare, or leave their jobs altogether. It's pickup time for the kiddos at the Stowell School's daycare in Stowell, Oklahoma. Bye-bye. All the children here have parents who work for the small town school. The district opened the daycare in late 2019 in an effort to try and recruit new teachers. We have people that would love to work at Stillwell, but they've, they've told us that they can't take the job because we don't have daycare. That's Matthew Brunk, the assistant superintendent at Stillwell Public Schools who helped start the daycare. Brunk says he proposed the idea to the superintendent after he and his wife moved to Stillwell and had a difficult time finding any child care in town. So, I mean, talk about panic. We had no idea what we were going to do. The lack of daycare in Stillwell isn't unusual. Nearly 60% of rural families don't have access to child care, according to a 2018 study by the Center for American Progress. Child care is a key issue for rural development and really speaks much more broadly to general workforce attraction and retention. That's Shoshana Inwood, a rural sociologist and an associate professor at Ohio State University. She says the lack of childcare in rural communities often forces parents to make tough decisions. When families don't have access to childcare, somebody needs to leave the workforce or to stay home and take care of the children. So that's sacrificing additional household income. But not only does a lack of access to childcare have a financial impact on families, it can have an emotional toll too. Ashley Fikowski is a mom of three living on the outskirts of Rolla, Missouri where she says the only childcare options she would be comfortable with are at least an hour away. We were really surprised having moved from St. Louis that there was no childcare um, unless you went through a church. Wykowski stayed home and planned to re-enter the workforce in 2020 when her first child was in kindergarten. But then she learned she was pregnant with twins. I mean, the decision kind of made itself but I really struggled with it a lot, especially at first. I was, like, so ready to return to work. She and her husband are now hoping to move out of their small town to be closer to family and childcare, so she can go back to work. Vykowski and her husband's struggle isn't unique. Nearly 30% of Missouri parents reported leaving a job or not taking a job in the last 12 months because of issues accessing childcare according to a U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation report. It's a nationwide issue that most recently grabbed the American Farm Bureau Federation's attention. Emily Buckman is the Director of Government Affairs and specializes in rural affairs for the organization. She says after hearing concerns from young families across the country about the lack of childcare access, the Farm Bureau put it on its list of Farm Bill priorities. They see it as one of those elements that is kind of a make or break for folks wanting to live the rural life. But there's no clear solution. Inwood of Ohio State University says creating quality and accessible child care goes beyond building more daycares. There's still the issue of how do you pay for that labor? Because child care workers themselves are some of the most underpaid um, workers out there who don't have good benefits. Back in Stillwell, Oklahoma, Matthew Brunk says the daycare currently has a wait list. We don't want anybody that's great for our school system and great for our kids to turn down a position because lack of child care in the community. So the district will soon open a new facility and expand from 12 to 20 kids. I'm Excaret Nunez, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media is a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains, including Prairie Public. Coming up, an essay from historian Tom Ezern and Sue Balcom is along for Main Street Eats. But first, this news. From the Prairie Public Newsroom, I'm Todd McDonald. Mail-only elections would be a thing of the past under a bill approved by the North Dakota House. The legislation would require every county in the state to have at least one in-person voting site. In response to President Donald Trump's national emergency COVID-19 declaration in March of 2020, 
Governor Burgum issued an executive order suspending certain election laws in favor of voting absentee via mail or Dropbox. Grand Forks Republican Representative Claire Corey carried the bill to the House floor. This is an important election integrity bill for those constituents who like to vote in person. This would prevent the governor from closely from closing a polling place on election day or week in the event of a dire emergency. House Bill 1167 was approved on a 93-0 vote. The State Board of Education is now on record opposing a change in tenure bill that would allow Dickinson State University and Bismarck State College to make changes in policy, making it easier to get rid of tenured faculty. Instead, the board is suggesting a study of the issue that would involve the board and lawmakers. Board member Nick Hacker suggested the study. He told the board he believes in North Dakota's right-to-work law. And we have tenure over here in higher ed that treats employees, uh, in particular state employees, differently than how other state employees are treated. And, and I understand a lot of the reasons. I'm not arguing against tenure. That's not the point. The point is, is that um, I do think that there should be more engagement about this than purely just the board. Dr. Lisa Montpleasure is the faculty advisor to the board. She said there's already as a process laid out for faculty review, and if things aren't going well, the faculty member would receive a notice and an improvement plan is supposed to be in place for the next year. Our concern is that there seems to be a breakdown in the process if we're jumping to the conclusion that um, faculty are not meeting their expectations, um, but that's never been in, an, in a review process or maybe there's a breakdown at those administrative levels. And so that is the crux of where some of the conversation needs to happen. The board vote was unanimous, eight to zero. From the Prairie Public Newsroom, I'm Todd McDonald. Next time on The Pulse, growing up, Paul was often violent, angry. He lied all of the time. I cheated on my wife a lot. Oh, my ex-wife, a lot. Guilt or remorse? I just don't have that feeling. Paul has a mental health diagnosis that carries a lot of stigma, and we'll explore how that has affected his life. That's The Pulse, coming up at 8 Central, 7 Mountain, right here on Prairie Public. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. Tom Ezern is a distinguished professor of history at North Dakota State University. Each week, he gives us a glimpse into his work with one of his Plains Folk essays. Today's essay is titled, The Whole Aspect of Nature is Transformed. Early morning, a few days ago, I ventured onto the icy section road to take Angie the history dog for her morning constitutional and was delighted to feel a warm breeze supplanting the icy gales of the recent cold snap. Returning to my desk, I commenced checking weather reports for Dickinson, Billings, Belfouche, and such points west to confirm what I suspected, that at my home in Cass County, we were the beneficiary of a Chinook. In the Red River Valley, we seldom get a Chinook wind with force, but we are grateful when a remnant arrives, spent but still warming. Otherwise, when temperatures in the West take a welcome turn upward in January or February, we on the uh, East Coast refer with mocking envy to Dickinson as the Banana Belt. Chinook bragging rights, however, go to Spearfish, South Dakota, where, on the 22nd of January, 1943, the temperature rose in two minutes from minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit to 45 degrees above, a rise of 49 degrees. Spearfish still remembers this salubrious event with an annual January festival, Chinook Days. That January day in the Black Hills is deemed legitimately historic because it was investigated and written up by an official authority, one Roland R. Hamon, weather observer of the U.S. Weather Bureau. Weather observer is an interesting job. 
as best I can determine, a weather observer is a staff meteorologist who, when some remarkable weather event takes place, is sent out or sends assistance to investigate what has happened and document it for the record. Haman's documentation of the Chinook of the 22nd of January, 1943, is in the monthly Weather Review, March 1943. This region is habitually subject to surprising temperature changes, Haman observes. Indeed, the Chinook is so prevalent that it may be considered a prominent climatological factor. Because of such temperature variations, this region has achieved some measure of fame or notoriety, but even these precedents were inadequate preparation for the occurrences of January 22nd, 1943. Now, the notoriety mentioned by Haman is also a matter of official record, courtesy of an assistant weather observer a generation earlier, Alvin T. Burroughs. His bulletin, The Chinook Winds, is in both the Journal of Geography and the U.S. Department of Agriculture, yearbook of 1903. The Chinook wind is peculiar, says Burroughs. In the dead of winter, it flows down from the mountains and high plateaus where ice and snow are supposed to predominate as a hot, dry wind upon the foothills and valleys below. Its effects are striking. The snow at these lower elevations, at first blown hither and thither by this increasing wind velocity, soon becomes moist and heavy under the influence of the blasts of hot air, and in an incredibly short time may entirely disappear. The temperature rises with astonishing rapidity, and the whole aspect of nature is transformed. As I read that out loud, I, I sensed the wonder in the weather observer's voice. Burroughs goes on to explain the beneficial influence of Chinook winds. After collecting testimony from stockmen along the front range, Burroughs concludes, Were it not for the visitations of this warm, dry wind, the vast stock ranges of Montana, Wyoming, and the Dakotas would have to be abandoned in the winter. As the cattle and other stock prevented by the snow from securing access to the nutritious grasses on the plains would not be able to secure nourishment sufficient to sustain life. Thus, the weather observer credits the Chinook for the historic possibility of the range cattle industry on the northern plains. By the way, I have read this essay to Angie the History Dog, and she approves. That's NDSU historian Tom Ezern. Coming up next, Sue Balcom is along for Main Street Eats. Hi, I'm Tom Brusso. She's been called Canada's unsung treasure and a queer feminist folk icon. Farron's been creating music in the shadows for a while. Rediscover her music and hear her story on the next Great American Folk Show. I am looking for something outside of forgiveness. You might call it Plus, Minnesota pop singer Brianna Barbara, Finnish singer-songwriter J.P. Kallio, and Danish jazz composer Jakob Bro, and emotional landscape painter Mandy Groom. The Great American Folk Show, Saturday at 5 p.m. Central on Prairie Public. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public... Know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine, and joining us again from Bismarck for our weekly chat on Main Street Eats is root seller Sue Balcom. Welcome back, Sue. Hey, thanks for having me. I love that bloom and shine. It's time to bloom and shine. It's thinking about plants. I'm Yay. waiting for you to market you that, and I want partner? residuals. Yeah. <laughs> you <are> residuals. <laughs> but you are making us think about spring today, Sue. You're talking about potting soil. Absolutely. And um, the price of potting soil, as well as everything else, is going mm. up. And I do have some really strong feelings about you um, potting soil. Oh the, yeah, that reminds and everything else, right? <laughs> that reminds me on the egg reports we used to hear as a kid: higher, higher, higher. 
when they would be talking about commodity prices, and this is almost a commodity in my wife's eyes, I think. Oh, my gosh, yeah. If I could figure out how to get a pallet out to my house, I would. Because, you know, I ordered, uh, like, I think it comes in 30 years, so pound bags, mm-hmm. the kind that I like. And I ordered some one time, and each of those bags came in a separate box. And, mm. oh, my gosh, between my husband and UPS driver, I was in the doghouse <laughs> for a very long time. <laughs> so my suggestion to everybody is start thinking about this now, because if you're going to grow your own transplants, you're going to want to make sure that you have a really good potting mix um, potting mix, sometimes when you buy it, is actually soilless and is just kind of a medium that you use. But we kind of mix our own. And I use this for starting transplants. I use it for pots on my patio. If I have extra tomato plants or something, I might pot one up and let the deer eat it because that's usually what happens because it's not inside the fence. But but you have to really be careful about what you're buying out there in those big, heavy bags. Potting soil is is um, a little heavier than a potting mix, but a garden soil, which has sand and clay, and, and you'll find big wood chips in there sometimes and stuff like that, is not sterile. And you do not want to start your transplants in a non-sterile soil. Um, So what I do is I have to look, and this is hard too, you have to kind of look for a potting soil. I don't use the potting mix. I'm making my own potting mix here. Potting soil that is sterile but doesn't have any other additives in besides something like commoner or some kind of compost. Um, There's a certain kinds of uh, potting soil that have additional fertilizers <laughs> and or those diaper beads in them. Oh, and yeah. those things are terrible. I thought, oh, this is great. I won't have to water my plants. And yeah. I used one one year and I probably lost every house plant I had because they never dry out fast enough and the roots rot. So definitely stay away from anything that has additional ingredients. So you want a sterile soil that has compost in it but not additional fertilizer. So sterile, does that just mean no living right, material? That, yes, that actually means that it's it's probably been heated or radiated or something. I hate to use that word radiated. but Some people put a black tarp over areas, superheat them for a week, mm-hmm. then you have sterile soil. Is- that, yep, that's exactly right. And you can do that. And in fact, all of your garden areas during the winter months could be covered with... with um, even clear plastic would work. And then what, what that sun does in the spring is it heats that ground up. If you have it really tight to the ground, actually kills all those weed seeds. And if you're using a no-till method, you're not going to bring up any new weed seeds. So mm-hmm. that's one way to help eliminate some of those weeds in your garden. But you know me, I like to pull them out. <laughs> that's an aggression thing to me, <laughs> And I love that sound of the rip from the soil. You know, when you're ripping oh them out of the soil, yeah. I love that sound. You're the only person I know who likes weeds. <laughs> <laughs> well, God even waters weeds, so they must be here for a reason, right? Um, so then when you find this, then you want to find some um, either cocoa mulch, like that's the new thing that kind of is replacing peat moss because there's been some issues about, you know, using up all the peat moss and I don't know if it ever regenerates. I I don't know. I use peat moss and I buy it by the great big things. But you use a quarter peat moss and a quarter vermiculite and then half of this potting, sterile potting soil, and it makes just a wonderful, fluffy mix for starting your transplants. And it's less expensive than buying a potting mix that's already been done up. Plus, you know what's in it. Um, The vermiculite and the peat are there to keep that soil light and fluffy because one of the last things that roots want to do is have to struggle when they're newbies to get through that soil. And the reason you don't want any additional fertilizer in there is because God created the most perfect thing when he created a seed. It's self-contained. It has everything it needs to get to probably the four-leaf stage before you have to start, you know, babying it a little bit. You know, and that is the seed survival package right there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So is potting mix pretty generic? Can I use it for tomatoes and succulents? Yes. I use I use that potting mix recipe I just said 
for everything. All my house plants have it, and all of my garden plants have it. And then when I do pots, you know, like I have big pots that somebody probably, I think, gave to me. Because why would I buy pots when they show up on my doorstep? Um, and so I fill those pots with with this soil mix, use it for a season, and then rather than throw it away um, or even throw it on the garden, I'll put that into my compost bin, hmm. and then I will start adding table scraps and, and whatever else to kind of replenish that soil. You know, it just kind of like – and you should have – brown matter in your compost combo anyway. So this is a good way to actually do that. Um, one of the things they they worry about is passing soil-borne diseases. But if you're growing flowers one year and then using that for edibles the next year, you know, you have to have really sick plants in order for that to happen. So hmm. as long as you're careful about that, um, thinking of Probably tobacco, mosaic disease in tomatoes probably is the most common thing I've ever seen. And I don't allow people to walk in my tunnels unless I'm supervising them and or smoke around them um, because of that disease that's in tobacco plants also can be transferred to tomato plants. So one of the things that Mr. Weber used to do, this is so cool, um, he's a friend of mine. Well, he was a, an elderly gentleman that lived next to me when I first got married and started reading organic gardening and then took what, what my mom taught me and went to a whole nother direction. And we used to have these competitions in the in the spring to see whose radishes would be ready to eat first. And sometimes in March I would come out and he would have shoveled my sidewalk and left me seed packets under my mat on the doorstep Aww. and stuff. But I would watch him. Well, it was... It was hard not to because he had a tendency to get up at 4 a.m. and start crushing aluminum cans outside my oh, bedroom window. But mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so I'm watching Mr. Weber garden. He, he had a huge garden in his backyard. And every year he would dig a trench from one end to the next, and it would stay open. And that is where he buried his compostable table scraps in that trench all summer long. And then next year, he moved the trench over a couple feet. Self-contained compost pit. Right. I mean, it's brilliant, isn't it? And Mm -hmm. that way, he was taking care. You know how much less garbage we have since we started composting when when I moved out to the country? I mean, it's it's amazing, the kind of garbage. And then that's the stuff that stinks (laughs) the worst. So, you know, and you can compost, you know, you can start a compost pile, you can have a little composter, and so you should never have to to lose that soil. And then do you mix that with your potting mix, or do you use it in place of your potting mix? Or the recipe that I For the compost. Oh, for the, well, you can add it to your potting mix or top dress your plants with it. Okay. Um, I wouldn't. I would never, I don't ever use it straight out of my compost bin, even though, man, it smells good enough to eat sometimes. <laughs> Sue, I have a quick, you've told us this before, I think, but how do you keep rodents out of your compost compost pile? Cats. Yeah, if you don't have cats. <laughs> cats and snakes. Nature's like, figured this one um, out, Craig. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying, to, trying to, what are you throwing in your compost heap that would attract rodents? I suppose they eat just about anything. I have never seen any. We have mice and stuff, but we have a cat. And then, of course, we have turkeys. I don't know if turkeys eat rodents or not, but we're going to have a turkey problem this year. Um, You have to make sure that you're putting only what you're supposed to put in your compost. So no dairy, no bread, no meat scraps. That kind of thing attracts varmints. But yeah, I think sometimes mice... They're an inevitable fact of life. Like, they're in my peat moss when I don't properly seal it up in the greenhouse. Mm-hmm. Like, I have an outdoor bin. I don't even know how they get in there. But my, I have a sister-in-law that's just, she freaks out at the grasshoppers jumping out of the grass and spider webs and box elder bugs and all those things that nature put for a reason on the earth. Um, and we kept our our uh, life jackets in this outdoor bin with my peat moss one <laughs> She opened it up, and there was a couple of mice in there. Nests oh, boy. There. So I had to move the life jackets. <laughs> it was probably good, too, because eventually they would have nested in there, right? So, sure. That happens. Um, 
Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if you can um, cover – you can cover um, your compost piles if you have them outside. But definitely I think there's not much more you can do to keep the little varmints out of there. Do you stir the compost all winter? Um, we have two – we <laughs> – <laughs> I don't know why I think that's funny. We have um, six-foot snowdrift under our compost bin. I can't even get to the okay. bin this right, winter, right. so the answer to that would be no. And then our cold compost, we never stir that up. That is just like piles and piles and piles, which is not a bad thing. If you look at the way Mother Nature composts, you know, you're in a forest and you have this loamy, beautiful fluff underneath a layer of dried leaves. And, you know, there might be mushrooms growing out of that or something. But they actually have, um, if you want to start a garden and you've never had a garden, you can create raised beds like that, like layering like Mother Nature does, which is why you would put, you know, mulch on top of your garden over the winter and let that decompose. It's good for the little varmints in the soil. It it decomposes and adds um, aeration to your soil, you know. So you can do what they call a lasagna garden, which is, you know, you line the bottom of a raised bed with a few layers of cardboard to kill off the grass. Um, one of the other things that we've done is um, taken the sod peeled it off and turned it upside down and then layered the cardboard on top of mm-hmm. it, which additionally helps to kill that grass um, and then water that down really good and then start putting carbon-rich materials, which are the brown materials, and the nitrogen-rich green materials on the top of that. So, And then you leave it for a while, right? right. Like sometimes so, even a whole season? Right. So that's that was my next comment was if you're going to start a garden – and it's fall, that's the time to do it. Or the summer before. Like if you not get if you don't get in on the growing season, you should do it probably a year in advance of that. Another question about the cardboard. Does it need to be like the unprinted cardboard? Yes. Like what if you take a box of yes. diapers that has dyes no. and no, pictures no, 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 no. and stuff? You wanna keep you wanna keep that cardboard. It has to be like cardboard boxes, corrugated cardboard boxes okay. that are clean. And there seems to be abundance of them from um, Amazon at everybody's house these days. But Amazon is getting smarter and they're starting to mail things in these brown paper envelopes instead of plastic and or boxes just to save room in the trucks and to um, kind of cut back on their carbon footprint. And that also works. You know, like, oh, my gosh. When was the last time you got a box from Amazon or or some other mail order company that didn't have like wads and wads of oh, this wonderful right. brown paper or that paper that's got the holes in it that stretches, you know, kind of funky? Mm-hmm. You ever seen that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never throw that stuff away. I iron the paper and roll it up in tubes sure. and put it what? under my yes. <laughs> and you can use that in your garden too. What does your garage look like? <laughs> I am the garage is off limits. That is JC's territory. He can put whatever he wants in the garage because if I put something in there, it always ends up in the middle of the yard anyway. I'm like, what's that? Do? in there. Well, it was in my garage. Okay, I'll move it. So I have to be really um, smart about how I hide that stuff. But oh my gosh, there's so many materials out there that you can reuse instead of throwing them in the landfill. And I'm all about that. We check in weekly with Root Seller Sue. Sue, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Craig. And thanks, Ashley. It's been my pleasure. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Morning Edition, weekdays from 4 to 9 a.m. Central on Prairie Public. This is Dakota Datebook for February 23rd. Two young men, one short and one tall, sat in a booth at Friendly Tavern in Minot, North Dakota, around 10 p.m. in the early days of February in 1955. Both wore Levi jeans and made unremarkable conversation with one another. The bartender, Tommy Oster, made his way over to the pair. 
One of the two looked young, so Tommy asked for his ID. It was a North Dakota license, and it said the man was born in October of 1933. The men politely ordered their drinks and played a few songs on the jukebox. They stayed until close and drank three beers apiece. At the end of the night, one of the two men approached the bar and drew a 38 caliber automatic pistol. He aimed it at Tommy Oster and his fellow bartender and ordered they put their hands down on the bar while the other went around the back and removed $160 from the till and an additional $15 from the billfold of one of the bartenders. After the unmasked robbers ran out of the bar, Tommy Oster picked up the phone and called the police. The police took statements from the two bartenders, and Oster admitted that although he saw the ID of one man, he did not make a note of his name or his place of residence. The police sent out word of the robbery and attempted to seal off any getaway route. It wasn't long before two men were identified as the likely suspects, in not only this case, but in other robberies around the state. Their names were Jack West and Philip Penry. The two had made a series of errors that helped lead to their arrest. For example, prior to a crime they committed in Minot, the two men checked into a hotel using their real names and then immediately switched hotels, possibly to throw the police off their trail. Additionally, police towed the pair's car, and they went to the station to claim it with their real names. The police now had the suspects' real names from the hotel, license plate numbers from the towed car, and even a month and a year of birth thanks to the ID check at the bar. Since the two men were not masked during the robbery, police also knew what they looked like. It was discovered that the perpetrators had been dating two girls from Minot and intended to meet them in Miles City on February 26th. The police planned to spring a trap, but this was ultimately unnecessary, as the duo admitted to the friendly tavern robbery on this date in 1955. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Colby Adderhold. I'm Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community. And that's a wrap for today's Main Street. Tomorrow, it's our monthly Journalist Roundtable as we take a closer look at the current legislative session. In addition to Prairie Public News Director Dave Thompson, we'll welcome special guests Jeremy Turley, Forum Communications reporter based in Bismarck, and Jack Dura, reporter with the Bismarck Tribune. That's tomorrow on Main Street at 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Central. Thank you so much for joining us, and remember, you can always hear past editions of Main Street at prairiepublic.org. Have a great rest of your day.